0: Good morning, Center of Church. Thank you, Andy. So this morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8, verse 31 through 38. So if you want to get your Bibles ready, we'll also have it on the screen. Um, But we're working through the belief barriers series. In the last couple weeks, we've looked at a few different uh, barriers that keep people from coming to true faith in Christ. Uh, The first week, we were in John chapter 3. And Andy spoke on the religiosity of Nicodemus and how oftentimes we can get hung up in religious practices, um, and that keeps us from truly understanding or committing to following Christ. And in the next week, in John chapter 4, we looked at the woman at the well and Jesus' interaction with her, and her belief barrier was that she was... Caught in sexual sin and the shame that comes with that and the isolation that comes along with that kept her from following Christ or from knowing Christ. But through that interaction and through Christ moving in her life, she became one of the loudest voices in Samaria because of that. And last week, we looked at John chapter 6, and nearsightedness was what we were looking at. Jesus, if you remember, performs a miracle for over 5,000 people where he turns a few loaves of bread or buns, as Andy pointed out, and fish into enough of a meal to feed this large multitude. And the people the next day sought after Jesus, but not for Jesus, but for what Jesus could give them. And so their belief barrier was nearsightedness. And this happens to a lot of us where we turn the gifts of the giver the focus into, or instead of looking at the giver as the gift. Jesus is the gift, not what he can give us. This morning, we're gonna be looking at false belief or more directly, uh, deceived faith. So when we talk about false belief, I think the idea is other religions like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, but we're not going that, that big. That is true those are false, but we're looking at deceived faith. So really, can someone that calls themselves a Christian be deceived? And we're going to find the answer for how to approach this or overcome this barrier in the passage we're looking at. So um, it's totally possible in this life to have a air of confidence or to really believe in something that you're doing, only to later realize your confidence was completely wrong or misleading. To explain this, when I was uh, in the military, I was in the military for almost eight years. I was an infantryman. And you have to shoot, move, and communicate. And part of moving is being able to do land navigation. And so after our deployment, I became a team leader. I was feeling confident. I had soldiers under me. And we had land navigation coming up. And and so I told all my soldiers, said, hey, you're going to go. You're going to get your refreshers. And you're going to knock this out of the park. But I wasn't going to go to the refresher, because I was like, I got this. I'm the man. I know how to land nav. I got this. Yeah, so 15 minutes into that, I'm walking through the woods, trying to find my grid coordinates, relying on my pace count, And I'm dead reckoning, which if you know what that is, instead of using fire breaks or being smart, I was just smashing through swamps and brush. It's not the way to go. But I'm excited, and I've got this on lock. I'm feeling confident. And I see a marker way out in the distance, a little clearing, and I I was like, yep, nailed it. I walk up to this marker, I read the 12-digit grid, and my heart sinks, because right there I learned two things. The first, my trust in my abilities to do land nav were weak and misplaced. And two, I'm going to get yelled at when I get back to my unit. <laughs> and I did. In this life, it is possible to walk as a Christian or proclaim to be a Christian and yet stand before the throne of God and be turned away. And that's a terrifying reality. But in John chapter 8 this morning, We see Jesus talking about what true freedom is, what true disciples will do, and what they will be. We also see true spiritual blindness placed on display, and ultimately, how we can have freedom. So if you would please stand with me for a reading of the Word of God. Again, we're in John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if, you, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Let's pray real quick. Lord, I thank you for this morning and this opportunity to be here speaking on this passage. I ask that you would open ears, that you would soften hearts, and that we can um, be convicted where we need to be, that we would be encouraged where we need to be, and that you would be glorified and magnified this morning. Please give me clarity, and please bless this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump into this text, we do need to understand just a little bit about what's going on. This is a turning point in a much larger conversation that actually starts all the way back in chapter 7. Really, the event starts to fold. From chapter 7 all the way to the end of chapter 8 surrounds this passage we're looking at. But the larger context is the Feast of Tabernacles has started, and everyone who is a practicing Jew, is going up to celebrate in this festival. And Jesus waits for a little bit, and then he ends up going. And there's a lot of rumors and and questioning about who he is. People even at one point, as conversations rise, they say, well, if the Christ comes, is he going to do more than this man has done? And there's a division. People are are split. They're going, this is totally the Christ. And others are saying, no, this isn't. By the time we get to John chapter 8, it's on the last day of the feast, Jesus begins making some very intense statements about himself, leaving no room for speculation or confusion. He says at one point, I am the light of the world. And then he says, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And people begin to wrestle even harder. And by the time we get to verse 30, right before a passage we're looking at, we see that it says, as he, as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. And then the next verse where we're going to start says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. There's a shift in audience. Jesus was of course speaking to everyone, but in the gospel of John, we see the title of the Jews used over 70 times. And more often than not, John is not referring to Jewish people because this was a Jewish festival. But he's zooming in on a specific group, and that is the scribes and Pharisees. Most throughout the Gospel of John, that is how John refers to the Pharisees as the Jews. And by the end of this text, he's insinuating that they're from their father and not Christ's father. And then Jesus comes out and says, You are children of the devil. He makes one more amazing I am statement saying, before Abraham was I am. And this is the breaking point where the Pharisees then pick up stones to murder him as Christ said they wanted to. So that's kind of what's going on as we look at this. But let's go ahead and look at verse 31 and 32. Again, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus has just highlighted what a true disciple is, what they will do. True disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ will abide in Christ. The word we get the word abide from the Greek word meno, which means to continue in or to remain in. And it's with longevity that just, it breaks down simply to abide. That is the first implication of this word. And true Christians will continue in the faith. So when your faith is high and it feels like nothing can shake it, and you feel like God is close, not he is, he's always close to Christians, but you you know what I'm talking about, it feels amazing. You continue there. Or when you're in a low valley and it feels like God has turned his face away from you and it hurts, Christians continue still. That is the first application or implication, excuse me, of the word abide, It's to remain in. The second implication of the word abide is to obey. Jesus was never about lip service. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? When we see this Lord, Lord, it implies or it's pointing to someone who's made a personal profession of faith. They believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and they follow him. But he's following it with a question, Why are you not doing what I call you to do? If we believe in Christ as Savior and Lord, we will pursue him till the end of our days, and we will obey him in what he commands us to. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly or sinless, or yes, sinlessly. We are in the flesh, and we fall. But, and while we might fall to sin, while we might fall into seasons of doubt, we will never fall ultimately, for we are held by God. We are carried along by Christ. Regarding this continuance of our faith, Spurgeon writes, I do not know about the merits of the question, which is often discussed in the papers, with regard to enlistment for a short or a long term of service in the Queen's army. But I know that my Lord and Master will not accept any one of you unless you enter his army for life, no more for all eternity. In Christ's true church, there is no profession of faith merely for a time. True disciples of Christ will abide in both senses of the word. <clears throat> Christ also points that true disciples will know the truth. They will know about the way of salvation. True disciples will know who they are. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This poor in spirit points to a spiritual bankruptcy this recognition of a lacking of the righteousness that we that is required of us God has placed righteous requirements over us and we fall short of them daily and the true christian a true disciple will recognize we are not perfect a true disciple will also know who Jesus is they will know Exactly who he is. In John 6, verse 35, Jesus talks about how he is the bread of life and that anyone that comes to him will never hunger and thirst again. And those two truths go together. If you recognize your need for a savior and you recognize Christ as that savior, then you now know the truth. And Jesus says, because of that truth, disciples are set free from that truth. We are set free from the wrath of God that was due to us because we've broken God's law. And it was carried, it was poured out completely on Christ, in our place. Not a drop was spared. True disciples are set free from the wrath of God. and we are set free from the judgment of the law. I've said it a few times now. we've, we've all fallen short, and we were under the law of God. And now we are in Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, we don't discount the law, but the law is no longer our judge. Christ is our judge. And we observe the law out of love for the Father and what Christ has done for us. And we've been broken free from the bondage of sin in this life. When Christ went to the cross, he cleared our debts and he also broke our chains. And so we are no longer slaves to the master of sin. Sin is no longer what controls us. But now we are free to live for Christ. We are slaves to righteousness. Jesus has completely highlighted what a true disciple will look like, what they will do, and what they will know. Right, And that's their freedom, their status. And this is an amazing truth and something that we ought to rejoice in always. But right after Jesus says this, We see utter blindness on display from the Pharisees. If you look with me, verse 33 they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus just highlighted what that freedom is going to look like. How will they get it? And they went, Hold on. But we're children of Abraham, we're good. They completely missed it. They pointed to something else. They leaned on an external source for their assurance in their salvation. But this is pretty typical of the Pharisees. They were constantly focusing on outward righteousness instead of the heart. We see this all the time in the interactions that Jesus has. He's constantly going after them for the things that they get wrong and trying to point them to himself. We see in the, or in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is correcting them for how they loved to pray on the street corners for attention. They would stand there raising their hands and, and looking super holy, and people revered them as such. And when they would give gifts to people, when they would help the poor, they would sound a trumpet, and all of it was for the wrong reason. It was never for, I want to serve God with my heart and my hand. It was, check me out. Look what I'm doing. In Matthew 15, we see that the Pharisees would circumvent obeying God's law by holding to the traditions of the elders. The Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments says to honor your father and mother, and that doesn't stop at any point. We continue in that. It just shifts phases in our life. But the Pharisees would say, oh, you render it uh, up as Corbin, and then you don't have to worry about it. It's for God. And Jesus was not okay with that. The Pharisees often looked at the wrong thing, and here we see their deceived faith or their false belief on display. But this level of deceived faith, or of getting it wrong, missing the point, didn't stop with the Pharisees. All around the world in the church today, there are people who find their comfort and their assurance of salvation in external things. In the American church, it is here as well. And terrifyingly, it may be here. And I hope this morning that this gets you to think. There are possibly people here who are finding hope of their salvation in something other than what Christ would say gives you hope. While I was in the National Guard for a while, um, I would talk to people about the gospel and how to be saved and what it means to be a Christian. And I never, ever heard the right answer. And that... That, bums, that more than bums me out. I would ask my friends, you know, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? And they'd say things like, well, you just got to do a lot of good things. Yeah, you got to do the right stuff, but like that doesn't save you. And they would start to fight me. Or one of my really close buddies, he said, well, I was, I was baptized as an infant. He grew up in a Catholic church. And so he In living this lifestyle that was completely opposed to what Scripture said, he felt that he was okay because his confidence of his salvation came through baptism. People will often in the church rely on our performance or our works. And we say, no, 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 no. I'm forgiven. I believe in Christ alone. I'm saved by faith alone. But then we'll look at how well or not well we're a Christian or we Walk as a Christian, and we will base our eternity off of that while still saying, No, 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 faith alone. There's a dissonance there. I'm not saying that what we do in this life doesn't matter. James says, Faith without works is dead. But we believe that we are saved by faith alone. So, how do we harmonize that? The saying is, We are saved by faith alone, but our faith will never be alone. Not we're saved by our works and our faith. We have to get that right. Or we'll often look at our involvement in a church, different ministries that we pour into, or how much we tithe or don't tithe. The way, how sanctified we are, how well we're being Christians and fighting sin. We we put the emphasis on the wrong thing. One of my good friends was having a conversation with their mother, and uh, they were talking about how do you, what do you do when you doubt your salvation? How do you find assurance of faith? And this woman said, well, I go into my closet, and I try to I speak in tongues. And when I've spoken in tongues, I know I'm saved. Now, I'm, I'm not here to talk about whether gifts are for today or whether they've ceased. Let's not get hung up on that. What was said is terrifying. That there's confidence in an experience or some kind of religious activity or spiritual experience. None of that saves anyone. The Pharisees displayed absolute Deceptive faith. They didn't get it. And there are some that might not get it today. Not to mention, and I find it a little comical, or at least I'm confused about it, how the Pharisees would look at Jesus and say, we've never been slaves to anyone. If you spend any time in the Old Testament, it's ironic. And they're standing there looking at Jesus saying, we're not slaves. Rome had them by the neck. I don't get that. But everyone is a slave to sin. And that is where Christ is going next. If you look at the next verse, starting in 34, in response to this display of deceptive faith or deceived faith, Jesus says, or yes, John writes, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. To sin, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Jesus just listened to their response of, we're good. We're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves. And he goes, actually, you are a slave. You're a slave to sin. He has just taken what they found confidence in, and he said, rubbish. That's not it. And then he undermined their confidence even more. In that day, slaves were property. It wasn't the type of slavery that we are familiar with from a few hundred years ago, but nonetheless, they were not part of the family. And once they had become free, they would usually leave. Jesus has just equated them to that. He's saying, you don't even belong in the family. But then he does something awesome. In verse 36, he says... So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Amen. Right after Jesus has just cut off their confidence, right after he has pointed out that they are slaves to sin, he then says, look at me. He is the son and he is the one who sets people free. Yes, we have all broken God's law. And once you've broken a single command, you have broken all. You are a lawbreaker. But that's why Christ came. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he walked in every righteous requirement that you and I fall short of, without exception. He lived it out perfectly. And he went to the cross willingly where every infraction and transgression that we carried out, he paid for. And as I said earlier about the wrath of God, he swallowed it all up and he was crushed for it. And he died and three days later, he rose again, winning for us salvation, those who believe in Christ On the cross, he made us innocent. Our debts, if we have placed, if you have placed your faith in Christ, that alone is what makes us innocent, his work. We are set free, but that's only half of the equation. See, while your debts are wiped, while you are innocent, Christ calls us to be what? Righteous. And we cannot be righteous on our own, and so before the throne of God, because of what He did on the cross, our sins are forgiven, and what He did in our place is what makes us righteous. It's this my favorite technical word: it's imputation. There was a double imputation that took place. Everything that is wrong with you, everything that you have done attributed to him, and he was paid for it all. And everything that you are not and everything that Christ is and all that he lived out in your place is attributed to you when you stand before God. And so we can stand confidently if we are believers in Christ in the finished work, and the imputation of Christ's righteousness before you. God sees what Christ did for you. But this is where, this is what Christ is pointing to. He's saying, look at me, this is what I've done. This is what I'm going to do. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we must ask the question, are we standing as true disciples who abide who know the truth and are set free by that truth, or are we looking and adding things to our salvation? Essentially, counting what Christ did as not enough. And I know that's hard, but that's the danger of looking outside of Christ's finished work. True salvation comes through Christ and in Christ alone. And after Jesus makes this, he then looks At his audience, he says, I know in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Jesus saw right through the belief that we get confused about in verse 31. He knew that their faith was resting elsewhere and not in him. And we need to make sure that we are not in the same boat, that we are looking to Christ and his finished work as any source of comfort, excitement, assurance, confidence, There's a passage that used to absolutely terrify me, and it still does, but in understanding it a little bit better, I think it communicates what we're talking about here, and I'm quite sure you will know what it is. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast demons out in your name and do many mighty works in your name?" And then I will declare to them, "I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." I think when we read that passage, we get con- concerned because here they are before the throne of God, making this profession, saying, "What?" else did we need to do? What didn't we do? Look at everything I did. If you notice, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I know I'm doing a little bit of jumping around. It's what I do. But John chapter 6, verse 40, that will, right? Because when we hear that in Matthew 7 passage, we go, wait, then what's the will? Just let me know what I need to do. John 6, verse 40, Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Those who look upon Christ, not those who look and do really well, those who look upon Christ are those who can hear the words, So the Son has set you free, and say, I am free indeed. It is entirely possible to live this life as a person professing faith in Jesus, and yet on the day of judgment be among those who have been given one last command by Jesus to depart from him. But if we are walking as Christ has called us to, not in perfection, but in abiding in him, holding to this promise that he is your salvation, he is your righteousness, knowing the truth and being set free by that, if that's where you're at, you do not have to worry about that last command, but instead you will be ushered into eternal life with Christ. This morning, as I end, I have two, like, what I'll call tangible takeaways. They're simple, but I believe they are profound. Not because I thought of them, but because, I mean, well, you be the judge. (laughs) The first tangible takeaway is this. You must spend time in God's Word and not... Once a week is great, but daily. You don't skip meals for weeks on end. Why would you skip God's words? How are you going to know what God loves or what God hates or that God hates? Some people might be like, hold on. We see that in Scripture. How are you going to know what God commands us to do if you don't read His word? How are you going to know accurately who Jesus was? Or what we've been talking about this morning, that there could be a deceived faith. How will you know these things if you do not spend time in his word? And the second tangible takeaway is that you must be in community. You must, and I would say accountable community. This last year has thrown us for a loop and caused us to separate. But we cannot let that be the reason we don't fellowship together or come together and hold each other accountable. Without community, we will fall. Without community, we are going to skip in our blind spots. There have been so many conversations that I've had with dear brothers, with my best friend, where I'll say something and he'll challenge me on it. And I'll go, You know, you're right. Thank you. Or I remember reading the Old Testament a bunch, and often people will say, The scary gut version of God is in the Old Testament. I beg to differ. You see him constantly wanting to show mercy, but how would you know that if you aren't reading his word and if you're not fellowshipping around it? So those are my two takeaways. And as we get ready to worship and as we go into tomorrow, let us wrestle with the question, am I walking in true faith or have I been deceived? And then if we find that we have been don't lament or do, but then repent. Turn away and say, not anymore. I trust in Christ for my finished work, or I trust in Christ for his finished work on my behalf. Amen. And it's those who look to Christ for salvation who can rejoice in saying that the son, when they see the verse 36, so if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. It's those who hold to Christ who can rejoice truly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today and for this morning, an opportunity to speak. Lord, I ask that your word would cause us to reflect and that we would take this seriously and that we would then look to you for all confidence and hope and for our salvation. Thank you so much for what you did on the cross on our behalf Help us to look to you and to find forgiveness and mercy in you. In Jesus' name, amen.